a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hey, here we are. Welcome to the show. Let's dive right in. Uh, let's, uh, well, jump right in with both feet, okay? Diving into an unknown area could be dangerous, might cause some problems, but actually uh, I'm, I'm going to dip a toe here and start with something decidedly non-political. This is a commentary from James Walpole, and I don't know about you, but if you were to ask people, you know, if you, okay, let's ask ourselves, all right? You have a choice before you. Let's say you find yourself standing at a crossroads and, huh, here is an easy road. It's gently sloping. It's smoothly paved. It's wide. It's free of debris and obstructions. And, well, you know, frankly, it looks like it would be a very easy path to follow. On the other hand, you could choose a road that is more rugged. Looks like it has some very steep parts, uh, maybe a few places where you may have to uh, do more than just walk. You might have to crawl or, you know, climb or something like that. Which road are you going to take? What's your gut reaction? Easy road or the hard road? I think human nature dictates. Most of us would say very clearly, I'll take the easy road. I want, I want to go you know, where it's the path of least resistance. I have to laugh because uh, one, of, one of my former coworkers and I would joke around, you know, whenever we were trying to solve a problem, you know, at, at work, um, he would come back to the prime directive, you know, remember in uh, Star Trek, the prime directive, do not interfere with other civilizations. Well, our prime directives were that ease dictates. So if we have a problem to solve, what's the easiest way to solve this problem? That's how we're going to do it. James Walpole has a little bit different take on this. And I think it's actually a healthier take than, than that to take the easy road. He says, always be on guard when someone offers to make something easy for you. In fact, he says, run like hell. They're stealing away an opportunity for growth. Now, of course, they aren't promising you something that isn't real. And this is important. The easy road does exist. In fact, most everyone takes it. That's often how you can tell it's the easy road is there's there's a lot of people on that road. But he says learning that's easy gets you mediocre knowledge. Training that's easy gets you mediocre gains. For that matter, a moral code that's easy yields unearned arrogance, but not a lot in way of character. Relationships that are easy yield shallow connection. So far, he's ringing true 100% here. James Walpole says, Meanwhile, the people who have worked hard at these things are laughing at the people who take the easy road. If you go the easy way, he says you ironically make the harder way easier for them. Savvy? There's less competition at the top if you voluntarily stay at the bottom, which is where the easy way will take you. He says, if you, like me, would like to break the habit of taking the easy road, it helps to remember this. There's something about feeling like a mark that puts a chip on your shoulder, and there is no motivation like a shoulder chip. He says, most people in a position to make things easy for you are, number one, people who either had things made easy for them, or number two, have done things the hard way and don't care if you join them in the halls of glory. The first kind hasn't, has not enough wisdom to make things easy for you. 
In fact, their way will make things harder. The second kind will remain your superiors as long as you accept their offer. So don't. He says it's safe to assume that anything worth having takes work. I know it's cliche, he says, but more work than you planned on doing. That's the insight. Growing up in America, we are given so many dreams at a young age that we assume that they're all possible. And so we assume they're all easier than they really are. Now, ever the realist, James Walpole says, look, this blog post is probably futile. You must take the easy road and come to the end of it a number of times before you see the wisdom in what he's saying. But he says a bit more suspicion of the people inviting you to take it might be in order. They're probably not consciously malicious, but their invitation will cheat you out of something that you ought to work toward. I don't know why, but this just struck me as I was, you know, looking through and I, I do. I spend a lot of time every day doing what, what we in the business call show prep. Uh, but I, I'm looking for interesting, thought provoking ideas and articles and essays that I can share with you. This one grabbed me probably because it has so much relevance in my own life. And for far too much of my adult life and my early radio career, I just wanted to take the easy way. Well, wherever the current carries me is fine. I'm just having fun. I'm just along for the ride. But I remember encountering an individual who, at uh, at a seminar that I attended, brought me face-to-face with greatness. We talked about the truly great people in history. The Thomas Jeffersons. Yes, I think he was a great person. The Harriet Tubmans. The people who accomplished great things with their lives, not because they made this much money and had this many titles and, you know, was a, were awarded, you know, this many medals of recognition, but just because they had outstanding character. And the one thing that every one of them had in common, they paid a price. And it's easy to forget that if you're not familiar with them, if you haven't read For instance, the great books of Western civilization, if you haven't tackled them, and I'm going to tell you, it's a daunting task. I've had a set on my shelves for close to 20 years now, and I have not begun to, to digest all of the content within them. But I have applied myself, and I have tackled them to the point that it has changed me as a person. And it doesn't make me better than you. I'm just saying that for me, it helped me to organize my thinking and it helped me to better understand you can do more with your life than you're currently doing. And by the way, when I made that realization, when, when, when I was at this seminar and this friend was talking about, you know, what truly great people do with their lives and how it stops being about just making money and, you know, recognition. Everybody knows me when I walk down the street, but they start looking at what is the impact that I want to have on the world. And realizing that it's something every single one of us, no matter how great, no matter how small we think ourselves, every one of us has that potential. And as my friend spoke about this, the light clicked on in my head. Oh, and I hated him for doing that. It was one of those instances where uh, once your eyes have been opened, you cannot consciously close them and go back to sleep without knowing you're turning your back on truth that is supposed to change your life. And change is not easy. And I was mad because I realized what I was doing was simply taking the easy road because it was the easy road. And isn't that the purpose of life, you know, to make as much money as you can while taking the easiest road possible? And long story short, it put me on a very, very different trajectory than I had been before. And while I kind of resented it initially just because it is hard, 
Um, I, I sit back now. Oh, it's been almost 20 years since I first had that uh, that epiphany. And I realized that my life would be entirely different. My focus in life would be entirely different had I not made the decision to take the harder road. Now, when you do this, I'm going to warn you, your friends and your family are going to look at you and they're going to ask, are you nuts? They may want to engage in some kind of um, intervention for you, right? They may want to, you know, actually, well, we just want to make sure that you're doing, are you on your medications? Are you, uh, are you doing okay? Because it doesn't make sense to them. Given the choice between, okay, here's something that would be easy. And I'll just, I'm going to use the example of, uh, you have a couple of job offers. One of them is definitely the easy road. It's something you're good at or something you're comfortable with. And yeah, it's not necessarily uh, something that's going to make you improve yourself. After all, it's, it's something you probably already mastered, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a good deal. It's nothing bad about it. It's just, it's a lot easier. The second one is going to require you to stretch. It's going to require you to live outside of your comfort zone for an extended period of time. It's going to make you sweat. It's going to make you struggle and strain and, and curse, you know, your, your, your failures and, and your inadequacies because it's hard. And I've been in the position where in my heart, I knew I had to take the harder road, even though I didn't really want to, even though, you know, people around me are like, really, you're, you're going to do that instead. This other thing would be so much easier. And I understand that I get it. But I'm saying James Walpole is absolutely right. The stuff you work for, the stuff you pay a price to make your own, whether it be in terms of knowledge or skill or character, that is something that is a source of real um, internal accomplishment, courage, and purpose. And if you take the easy road, you'll give that up. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty easy ride, but I promise you, at the end of your life, you're going to be looking back going, why didn't I do more with the resources that I was given? Part of the joy of life is in the struggle. I can't believe it took me till I was this many years old to realize that. But I think it's true. In fact, I know it's true. You'll have to check out the essay. It'll be in the show notes. Check them out at lovingliberty.net. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. I am so glad that you are part of my audience today. And again, steering a little bit clear of political topics, at least for the moment, I found another terrific essay. This is from Isaac Morehouse. If you're not familiar with Isaac, I would encourage you subscribe to everythingvoluntary.com. The website actually is everything-voluntary.com. They'll send out uh, an email just about every day. I think it's about six days a week. I see this land in my inbox, and it always has incredible, thought-provoking commentaries. Isaac is one of the chief contributors, and he has a really interesting take on billionaires in a free market. Now, you and I both know, right, it's very fashionable right now to rail against billionaires. You don't have to be a Bernie bro in order to to realize that there are a lot of people look at people with a billion dollars or more in net worth as 
Uh, there's something suspicious here. You know, Richard Branson, Oprah, Bill Gates, George Soros, Jeff Bezos. Somehow, the billions of dollars that these individuals have, people perceive it as if some, the, these billionaires have done a personal slight to them. My life sucks because Jeff Bezos is so dang rich. Well, Isaac Morehouse is about to put that notion to rest. And he just starts right out by saying, look, someone else having a billion dollars does no harm to you. In fact, he points out, it very likely makes their life harder, not materially, but emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically. But it does nothing to make you worse off. So if you feel less happy because you envy them, that's not caused by their billion dollars, but by your choice to judge yourself in dollars and against another person. And that's an unhappiness only you can fix by changing your orientation. Now, he's, he's also a realist here. Isaac Morehouse says it's possible that someone obtained a billion dollars through violence. The most likely scenario is via collaboration with government, as it would be very difficult and rare to do so violently without at least some state cooperation. Gaining wealth via government, which is always backed by the initiation of violence, does cause harm to the world. Taxpayers and those prohibited from peaceful activity by monopoly protections, those are the people who are harmed. But he says, notice, it's the acts of theft and violence that do the harm, not the billion dollars itself. The having of the billion does not cause harm only if the process of obtaining it did. And then the problem is the process, but not the money itself. Now, one could use a billion dollars to do harmful things like buy weapons to hurt people. But then the hurting of the people is what's doing the harm, not the holding or spending of the billion dollars. He says there is no way in which another person having possession of a billion dollars can harm you. Outside the peaceful free market, they may cause harm in either obtaining it or use it to cause harm. But he makes this distinction. If they obtained it via market means, meaning no violence, just voluntary exchange, and they use it on the market, again peacefully, not only does someone else getting, holding, or spending a billion dollars do the world no harm, but it actually does tremendous good and creates value. Perhaps I should pause here for a moment while uh, some of my uh, young young communist friends clutch their chests and, and gasp in, in disbelief. How could that be? Well, Isaac Morehouse says the only way to obtain money, absent force, is you take a resource valued at X, do something to it, and then exchange it with someone who values it at greater than X. And that greater than is the profit you earn but it's also a measure of the minimum amount of value that was created, value that did not exist prior to the exchange. And even those who earn billions by investing in companies and then doing nothing while the company gains value, they're still creating value. Not only by providing capital that the company needs to earn profit or create value, but the process of inventing itself is so full of efforts and failures that it creates untold new information that makes the market better and innovating and creating new value. Isaac Morehouse says the billions earned on a few winning investments pale in comparison to the untold benefit created by all the failed investments that pushed ideas and products forward and created priceless information about what works and what doesn't. So here's his conclusion. He says, billionaires in a free market are no threat. 
and their wealth is likely a sign of tons of value created for you and others. Now, that doesn't make them morally good people or intellectually adept or fun or kind or anything else. It just means that their existence is no threat and how they got their created benefit for others, intentionally or not. Billionaires, he says, in an unfree market don't harm you by the mere fact of having a billion dollars, but by the way they got it or what they use it for. And so he concludes, fight for freedom. Don't fight against others having arbitrary amounts of money. That makes sense, right? I love how he pointed out early on in the article here that, you know, having a billion dollars, I look, I, I would love to have enough money that I don't ever have to worry about how are we going to make ends meet? Can we meet this bill? Will we have enough savings for retirement? All of that kind of stuff. I worry about it just like everybody else. But the truth of the matter is, People who have immense amounts of wealth, they also have a heavier load to bear. And as as he points out here, Isaac Morehouse says, yeah, that billion dollars may make their life harder, not materially. Okay, so they can buy Learjets, they can buy, you know, fancy sports cars, mansions all around the world. But emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically, they have a very difficult burden to bear. They have to wonder if every person who approaches them is doing so out of you know genuine concern for them or out of true friendship or even familial love or if there's an ulterior motive do they want something are they you know angling for some kind of a a handout that's just something they have to to factor into every relationship in their lives they're on the uh, defensive oftentimes because why well they're a billionaire you know there are protesters in the streets protesting them I think that to me, and I'm just speaking for myself, maybe if you were a billionaire, you would never be tempted. But there's, there are times when I'm almost grateful, almost grateful, that my creator has not blessed me with immense, immeasurable wealth and that sense of security that I would never have to worry about money or never have to work another day in my life. And I think it's wise. I think he understands. It would ruin me. I don't think my character is sufficiently developed that I would be able to resist the urge to just, you know, squander my life or, you know, go out and, and just, you know, travel the world and be be the international playboy. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it would turn me into some kind of a raunchy tour. I don't know. But I know this. Uh, you see people who have achieved immense amounts of wealth, sometimes in, in the context of rich and famous and it becomes a, a very destructive thing to them. I don't really have to spell it out, right? You've, you've seen this happen. Spiritually, they are impoverished. Emotionally, they're impoverished. Psychologically, they're scared of their own shadow. And I'm not trying to make poverty into a virtue. But whoever, whoever coined the phrase, mo money, mo problems, that was truth. Some people can handle it. You know, some some Andrew Carnegie's out there can can build, you know, vast empires and and charitable foundations and and create libraries and hospitals. And, you know, people can do some incredible philanthropic work. But if you look at the stories of people, for instance, who, who won the lottery, people who didn't earn the money going back to that easy road versus the hard road, the people who came into sudden wealth and, and just found themselves 
with money falling out of their ears. It's shocking, the the horror stories that come up. I mean, the 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 sons and daughters they end up having to bury. Why? Well, they overdosed on drugs or died, you know, driving their uh, Lamborghini, you know, too fast and, you know, got in a crash and were killed or that are preyed upon by scam artists or, you know, slip and fall artists. Well, I was walking by your property and I tripped and that's going to cost you, you know, uh, $13 million. And the jury will often go along with it. So the lesson is don't be envious of the people who have the money. Focus on how you can create value. You want to get rich? That's the way you're going to do it. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I have so much good information to share with you today, and I mean stuff that, you know, properly applied could conceivably make a difference in your life. And I'm not going to take any credit for for anything other than just, you know, thanking you for being a part of my audience and being here to hear this. But, uh, boy, i got to tip my hat to a great, great writers like James Walpole and Isaac Morehouse and T.K. Coleman. I, uh, I met T.K. Coleman for the first time when I attended uh, FECON. That's the Foundation for Economic Education's annual conference a couple of years ago in Atlanta. Just a, an outstanding young man, an entrepreneur and spokesman and role model. He is uh, possibly one of the most dynamic people I've ever met. I'm serious. I, I, can't, I can't believe this guy is not a major television star or, you know, movie star. He just has that kind of presence. And so he's a very good fit with the Foundation for Economic Education. And I love his take on just about everything. I, this guy has a, 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 the ability to just dispense distilled wisdom. And it's, it, you can tell when you read it, it's like, wow, there's real substance here. It's not like he's just, you know, spouting fortune cookie sayings or anything. He really put some thought into it. And when I saw the headline, the problems we must solve are too important to reduce to left versus right politics. I thought, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be worth our time. Read through it, and I thought, it's good enough. I want to share it with you. This is from T.K. Coleman. He says, when considering a way forward, the discussion initially seems to be complicated because there are a lot of things that have gone wrong in the aftermath of George Floyd's tragic death. But he says, looting is wrong. Blaming the wrong people for looting is wrong. Using the wrongness of looting to drown out c- discussions about what preceded the looting is wrong. All of the aforementioned things are wrong, but he says the key to finding a solution lies in identifying a more subtle form of wrong that blinds us to the answers we need. And he says that is the tendency to reduce discussions about race and riots to the same old left versus right talking points. T.K. Coleman says not only is this wrong, but it's also a form of being wrong that condemns us to a cycle of repeating our past mistakes. He says, if our underlying framework for discussing solutions is wrong, then everything that follows will be wrong as well. So we don't need to pretend that a battle between left and right is unreal or unimportant, but we do need to remember that that battle is a manifestation of a broader and more fundamental battle between things like freedom versus force, creativity versus coercion, central planning versus voluntary markets that allow all individuals to opt in and opt out of services based on their basic human right to decide for themselves what their preferences and priorities should be. 
He's right. He's dead on right. You know that. As everyone searches frantically for a specific group or political figure to blame, T.K. Coleman says lovers of liberty are being presented with an opportunity to take the conversation beyond the familiar mudslinging at personalities and parties. And he has a quote here from Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman, who said, I do not believe that the solution to our problem is simply to elect the right people. The important thing is to establish a political climate of opinion, which will make it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing. Unless it is politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing, the right people will not do the right thing either. End quote. And T.K. Coleman says the message here is, apropos for our times, trust incentives more than individuals. That applies to corporations and governments. This applies to leftist organizations and right-wing organizations. This applies to the religious and the secular. This applies to academia and entrepreneurship. The basic economic principle that people respond to incentives applies to us all. So if the incentives of a system are bad, even the work of those who mean well is compromised. And if the incentives of a system are good, we don't have to place so much faith in our ability to always see things the same way. He says the way we're going to move forward in this world is not by finding a person who's good enough to make bad systems work, but by investing in systems that incentivize even the bad people to make themselves accountable to creating value for others. And we know of no system like that other than the free market. T.K. Coleman says the world is more ready than ever to hear from voices who are willing to show them something that offers meaning, healing, and hope in times of conflict and crisis. And he says there's no better time for us to show those who are hurting how much the free market creates and delivers, even when their enemies condemn and disagree. Wouldn't you say that's the higher road? Notice I didn't say the easier road, but the higher road that we should be taking, you and I? I don't know why. It just, it, it jumped out at me. It, uh, it struck the right nerves. And so I share it with you. Uh, by the way, all of these essays that I'm sharing, you can find in the show notes at lovingliberty.net. Click on them. Share them with friends. If it's something that, to, that hits the right chord within you, it's good enough to share with others. I'm going to shift gears now. We're going to talk a little bit about economics. Will economics fall to politics? This is from Jeff Deist with the Von Mises Institute, Mises.org. And, you know, in, in, a, in an atmosphere where statues are being torn down and basically we're renaming everything that came before us, you have to ask yourself, okay, so what's next on the chopping block? And believe it or not, free market economics, yeah, that's one of the things. Well, they call it capitalism. Wrongly call it capitalism, but that's, that's what is on the chopping block. Jeff Deist says the intense pressure to politicize every aspect of academia will not spare economics. And why would it? A society willing to topple statues is hardly one to worry about pulling down a body of knowledge, especially one skillfully characterized by the left as a political program rather than an actual social science. He says, keep in mind that the English literary canon and Western Civ generally are under fire on campuses across America. What we think of as important and seminal works in classics, literature, philosophy, and history increasingly are questioned and discarded. Even hard science, STEM curricula are not immune. 
And not simply for the lack of diversity among those working and teaching in STEM fields, but because the knowledge itself is deemed too Western and Anglo-centric. Even physical sciences are not considered objective in our grim political world. Two plus two equals four, says who? So Jeff Deist says we can't imagine economics is immune from this gross politicization. The dismal science is similarly full of dead white men. Names like Adam Smith, Karl Marx, John Maynard Keynes, Alfred Marshall, Paul Samuelson, along with Austrians like Hayek, Hayek rather, and Mises. These are the ones that come to mind when you're naming seminal works. And Jeff Deist asks, do we think this edifice will not be attacked on identitarian grounds, even apart from the general belief that economics is mostly a fake discipline designed to provide phony intellectual cover for business interests? He says academic economists supposedly have skewed and still skew more conservative than their deeply left-wing colleagues in social science departments, at least according to this perishable 2010 study by the New York Fed. But he says this is not really true today, and it's less so every year. According to Forbes, 70 percent of economists supported Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump in 2016. And most are Democrats. So while university economists might be left-leaning than academia generally, they may well be further left than the general population. And this is readily apparent if you spend much time consuming Fintwit, shorthand for financial Twitter, where economists and financial types who are active on the platform gather. In the Fintwit universe, old horses like Paul Krugman find themselves elbowed aside by deeply progressive younger voices like Noah Smith at Bloomberg. Marshall Steinbaum at the University of Utah, and modern monetary theory proponent Stephanie Kelton at SUNY Stony Brook. These writers focus with particular zeal on, quote, remaking economics, questioning whether any past knowledge, however painstakingly developed, fits the modern world. We need a new economics, always one that serves people over profits, which is another way of saying serves their preferred political program of democratic socialism. Now, increasingly, economics is understood not as a discipline with principles, axioms, and laws, but rather a malleable tool run by legislative or central bank fiat. Economies can be commanded. After all, Congress just appropriated more than $2 trillion in the CARES Act with no new taxes. And by the way, the Trump administration has plans for another round of trillion-dollar stimulus. So if the $600 weekly federal add-on to unemployment benefits is extended into August and beyond, are we not approaching a form of basic or universal basic income? The Fed, for its part, has already created more than $3 trillion in, quote, liquidity just since February of this year and appears willing to increase its balance sheet to $10 trillion, as needed to soothe corporate bond markets. Jeff Deist says any casual observer is hard-pressed not to wonder whether government cannot simply create money and credit indefinitely. Why can't this new normal system keep us all housed and fed even after the coronavirus crisis fades? Why can't we substitute politics for economics and, in fact, redefine the latter as a state program? He says those of us who believe in markets and property better wake up. Send this link to everybody you know. And he reminds us when when economics falls to politics, peace and prosperity fall to poverty and violence. I think this is a particularly timely warning. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show.
And just like that, we are back on the Brian Hyde Show. Want to talk for a moment here about uh, our ancestors. Now, look, I, I have to confess, just in the interest of full disclosure, I have a son who is very, um, I, I want to say obsessed, but there's got to be a nicer way to say it. He really is keyed in on family history. And by that, I mean he is willing to spend hours on Ancestry.com or on, uh, what is it, the family tree, going through and looking up and learning about our ancestors. And some people may think, yeah, 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 you know, genealogy, whoop-de-doo, you know. For some people, it's a boring subject. Not for him. For him, it is uh, almost an uh, it is almost an obsession. He loves to learn about those who came before us, what kind of people they were, what did they go through? What could we learn about them? What can we learn from them? Now, I admit, personally, I'm one of those guys who you'd mention genealogy to me and my eyes glaze over and I'm just, oh, okay, I'm off daydreaming somewhere else, thinking about hunting or fishing or something. I, I just have never had a very keen interest in it. Although I will admit, the older I get, the more I become aware of my own mortality, the more I start to take interest in those who came before and realize, you know, they've been, they've been through where I'm just now treading and I want to know more about them. Because who they were, the decisions they made, helped to shape who I am today. And likewise, that's something I could very well be influencing, you know, for my kids, for my grandkids, and for their kids on into the future. So I have no problem with the love of ancestors. But right now, we are going through this, this nationwide purge to, to get rid of everything that came before us. And there's a great article on LewRockwell.com, Love of Ancestors in American History. I thought this provided some needed perspective. This is by Vasco Kohlmeyer, who says, In the past few weeks, we have watched the widespread vandalization of statues and memorials dedicated to men who played a pivotal role in the story of our nation. Among the targets were such giants of American history as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, and Ulysses S. Grant. The purge was carried out on the charge of racism. However, something did not add up. A number of the men whose statues were desecrated were actually well ahead of their time in their views of race, and they did much to further the cause of black people. But, of course, the vandals would hear none of it, which came as a surprise to many. He says there is, however, nothing surprising about their actions once we understand what they are truly after. And he says what the statue slayers really want has nothing to do with racism. Their goal is not to fight or remedy racial injustice, which in the U.S. has been done decades ago. Their goal is to tear America apart. And the way they attempt to achieve this is quite insidious. They seek to make us ashamed of our history, which they maintain is one of continual racism that persists to this day. Now, Vasco Kohlmeyer says, once we internalize this spurious native or narrative, rather, we can't help but repudiate our past. The moment that happens, we become doomed as a nation since no people can survive as a national entity without the institution of togetherness, which a shared history or a sense of shared history helps to foster. So it's precisely for this reason that all sane and healthy countries preserve and honor the landmarks of their past, especially those dedicated to the men who shaped their history. It's this collective sense of history that binds a people together and gives them a feeling of belonging to a larger polity, which we call a nation. And when the glue of a mutually shared history loses its binding power, a nation will, sooner or later, come apart. 
That's exactly what the internal haters of America seek to bring about. By claiming that the key players in American history were racists, they try to portray our past as a tale of injustice. Needless to say, their charge of racism is both is, is both misplaced and unjustified. Slavery, which they position at the center of their narrative as America's original sin, has existed throughout the world since the advent of society, and probably even before that. It's only relatively recently in, histo- in historical terms that this practice has been largely relinquished. And then he points out the United States has paid a greater price in blood and treasure than any other nation to stop this practice and eliminate racism from its institutions. It did it so well that in the second half of the 20th century, America's black population enjoyed more rights, opportunities, and freedoms than black people in any other country at any point in history. Vasco Kohlmeyer says the claims of the statue topplers that America's past is somehow uniquely egregious because of slavery betray a lack of historical perspective. If we should condemn American history because it has been marked by this practice, then we would have to condemn almost all of history. In nearly all great civilizations of the past, Egypt, Sumeria, Babylon, Phoenicia, Greece, Rome, etc., slavery was commonly practiced. In fact, these civilizations were to a great extent built on slave labor. And so he asks, are we going to blanketly condemn them all? Are we going to say there was nothing good in them and discard their great contributions to the development of mankind? Are we going to tear down statues of Plato, Aristotle, Pericles, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, because all of them either owned slaves or directly benefited from their labor? Are we going to condemn Jesus, who lived at a time when slavery was a widespread practice, rather, and yet chose not to launch a crusade against it? When asked how people should behave toward their Roman overlords, he stated, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And he said this even though slavery was endemic in Roman society. Until relatively recently, nearly every society or historical figure was, by the logic of today's crusaders, tainted by slavery in one form or another. In Europe, for instance, serfdom, which was essentially a soft form of slavery, lasted in many places well into the 18th century. In the rest of the world, such practices lasted well beyond that time. In fact, slavery exists in a number of places in the world to this day. Most of those places are in Africa. Most of the enslavers, as well as the enslaved, are black. One wonders why today's racism crusaders don't focus their attention where the real problem is. In any case, he says we cannot judge history through the lens of today's political correctness, which is a luxury that comes with our modern cushioned existence. Given slavery's historical ubiquity, it is obvious that there existed a very strong natural tendency toward it as an institution. Neither was slavery seen as uniformly negative or injurious to those subjected to it. Sad sad though it may sound, for many in the past, slavery was preferable to the alternatives they faced in life. Many people sold themselves or their children to slavery voluntarily because they simply could not provide enough to survive. Furthermore, when in, the, in past wars, armies were defeated and prisoners taken, they were, there were just two options for those on the losing side, death or servitude. And many a prisoner was glad for the availability of the latter. So as far as American history goes, Vasco Kohlmeyer says it is nothing like the haters try to portray it. No person or country is perfect, 
Every person or country has committed their share of errors, and America is no exception. This being said, America's is an inspiring and magnificent history. It is a history of a people who made a perilous voyage across the ocean in search of a new home. It is a history of those who faced very difficult conditions and managed to survive despite the odds. It is the history of a people who, from humble beginnings, managed to build the most prosperous and free nation the world has ever seen. Ours is a history of a young nation which, after many struggles, errors, and setbacks, managed to build a society which translated into reality the noblest aspirations of the human soul, equality and freedom for all, white, black, yellow, and everything in between. The efforts of our forefathers eventually made America a shining city on a global hill, a magnet for people from all over the world, regardless of the color of their skin. That's the essence of the American story. He says the miracle of America has come about because of the dedication, strength, and ingenuity of our ancestors who overcame immense challenges to make their country a better place for those who would come after them. And all of us, including the ungrateful complainers of today, are the fortunate beneficiaries of their sweat and blood, and we should be deeply grateful for their efforts. We should be thankful regardless of our race, for America is fair, equitable, and opportunity rife for all who live here. Vasco Kohlmeyer says, by any historical standard or measure, we Americans are very fortunate to have had great forefathers. And he says, we must not allow the ransackers and assorted malcontents to cast false aspersions on their memory. And we must not let them besmirch our history by their distorted interpretations of it. Because if we give up our past, we will surely lose our nation. We owe a deep debt of gratitude to generations past. We must not let anyone sever the bond of love that many of us feel towards them. Above all, to be the worthy heirs of our forefathers, we must not become intimidated by the screeching of the agitators. Instead, he says, we need to strengthen our resolve to keep defending and fighting for what we know is right. Let those who come after us say that our generation rose to that challenge and that we did it well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.